Hello, and welcome to the podcast. I am your host, Umi, and you are listening to Human Becoming, a podcast about healing, awakening to the experience that is ourselves, what it means to become human, and how we can get there. Thank you for joining me. It is wonderful to have you here. In today's episode, we will be discussing mental health and healing, my journey with psychiatric medications, having been diagnosed with depression, anxiety, and later bipolar disorder, how I am living sans psychiatric medication, and weave throughout this story what I have learned along the way. My hope is that wherever you are in your journey, being the journey of life, there will be something in here for you, something that speaks to you or a set of questions that arises that allows you to reflect more deeply on your own journey, your own experiences, and what has brought you here to this moment. Now, this podcast episode is very special to me. When I was beginning my healing journey, I wished more than anything that I could find someone who shared my diagnosis and who had found some other way of living with it without having to take psychiatric medication. I knew there couldn't just be one way or one road, and for everyone that showed me that another path was possible, I owe you my life and I am unspeakably grateful. So, younger version of myself... This episode is dedicated to you, and to anyone like you, trying to walk the path less traveled in a world as confusing as this one. Dear listener, I hope it finds you exactly where you are, and exactly when you need it. I would like to note that this episode will contain themes that some might find distressing, namely suicidal ideation, psychiatric hospitalization, and sexual assault. Take care of yourself, and if you'd like to take my advice, listen to this episode when you have a moment to be still, to be present, and to reflect on your own experiences in the light of what we will share. Let's begin. Firstly, I'd like to say that this is not going to be a psychiatric medication bashing episode. I think psychiatric medication can literally be a lifesaver for so many people. For me, the problem is much deeper than psychiatric medication in and of itself. The problem is a medical system that only has one limited way of understanding the phenomena that is commonly termed mental illness. I use the word and framing of phenomena more than I use the word mental illness, because I firmly believe that our understanding of mental illness is simply one way of attempting to explain a phenomena that is complex, too complex, perhaps, to be easily broken down and categorized as neat pathologies and illnesses, as is so often the case in our current psychiatric system. I believe that when we decenter the language and categories of mental illness and recenter the phenomena, we might gain a completely different understanding of what a person in crisis is experiencing. I'll give you an example. Hearing voices and seeing things or people that others can't see 
are often symptoms in the mental illness model of psychosis. However, that is one interpretation of an event. Through another lens, we might interpret these phenomena differently. Hearing voices might be a sign that someone is particularly gifted, that they're able to communicate with worlds that surely exist, but most of us don't have access to. Unfortunately, when we position mental illness as the only category to frame these phenomena, we lose a much richer, more interesting picture and story of what is happening for a person in crisis, be its catalysts chemical, spiritual, emotional, or other. And by seeing mental illness as something that is entirely related to brain chemistry, what do we lose about the societal factors around a person that cause them to go mad? My problem, then, is with a system that sees a plethora of phenomena as being attributed solely to brain chemistry, that isn't willing to utilize other lenses to help people heal, a system that often fails to recognize the very real role that trauma can play in shaping human behavior, and that sees the primary solution to so many of these problems, major air quotes, as medication. Bessel van der Kolk, I always struggle with that name, <laughs> speaks about this in his book, The Body Keeps Score, Mind, Brain, and Body in the Transformation of Trauma. He is one of the world's experts on traumatic stress, and his book offers a new paradigm for its treatment, one which moves away from the standard talking and drug therapies and looks towards an alternative approach that heals mind, brain, and body. In one chapter of his book, he discusses how the theory that mental illness is caused primarily by chemical imbalances in the brain that can be corrected by specific drugs has become widely accepted and has had the unfortunate side effect of enabling patients to suppress their problems without addressing the underlying issues. The brain disease model takes control over people's fate out of their own hands and puts doctors and insurance companies in charge of fixing these problems. Unfortunately, despite these medications being more readily available, we're also seeing a mental health epidemic that scale has never been seen before. Surely, I wondered, there must be another way. That takes us to our next segment, my personal journey from being diagnosed with depression, anxiety, and later bipolar disorder, my descent into madness, and how my decision to quit all psychiatric medications led me to the questions that we'll explore in this podcast series, and to a more whole, healed version of myself. All the thoughts I've shared with you up until this point have been things I discovered or pondered along the journey, but I want to take you back to the beginning, where I started to question these rigid categories of mental illness, where I started to question what created my insanity, and where ultimately I discovered that my medication had allowed me to suppress my traumas, pains, sorrows, and anger without ever addressing the underlying issues. This podcast, in many ways, is the story of those underlying issues and how I embarked on the lifelong process of seeing and discovering them. 
We could say it started in childhood, as most traumas do, but for convenience sake, we will start the story a bit later. The year is 2019, the month is January, and I've gone through a pretty rough breakup. I was struggling with feelings of depression, I was finding it hard to eat and was rapidly losing weight, I struggled to get out of bed most mornings, and my anxiety was consuming me. The things that used to bring me joy didn't, and I felt that most days were a challenge to get through. I went to visit my GP in hopes of finding an appetite stimulant and thinking that my low mood was probably because of an iron deficiency. Instead, she prescribed me with an antidepressant, aspentrazidone, and told me to check in with her in a few months. I was about to fly back to the States, where I was studying, from South Africa, which is where I live, and I filled a five-month prescription, got ready to make the 16-hour-long flight to university, and started my journey taking psychiatric medication. To cut the story short, the aspentrazidone didn't work. <laughs> I felt groggy, fuzzy-headed most days, I was sleeping far longer than I was used to, and I didn't notice much of a change in my moods. If anything, and this is an experience that many people who have taken psychiatric medications share in, I felt numb. I wasn't particularly sad on most days, but I wasn't happy either. I knew that I could only change medications when I got home, so I waited out my five months and in May, upon returning home, went to see a psychiatrist. I still felt hopeful about what the right medication could do for me, and he promptly prescribed Lorian for my depression and Stressum, great name for an anti-anxiety medication, for my anxiety. Within a few weeks of taking the medication, I felt drastically better. The fog that had hung over me for so many months started to lift, and I felt like myself again. I felt capable of doing things, like going for hikes and going to social events that I had felt incapable of doing for so long. It was one of the best summers of my life. When I returned to the States in September, I continued to feel fantastic. Invincible, even. These medications had given me a new lease on life, and I wanted to cherish all of these new opportunities and my new capabilities. A friend called me one morning and asked if I wanted to go running, and despite not being a runner and not having an athletic bone in my body, I could run 5 to 10 kilometers without feeling like I'd broken a sweat. I kind of felt like I'd taken the pills from Limitless. Which, side note, if you haven't watched Limitless... This would be a good time to pause the podcast, do a quick Google, maybe watch a trailer, and you'll get the reference. I could do anything I set my mind to, and I did. For someone who had spent much of their life preoccupied with anxiety, what-ifs, and worst-case scenarios, I didn't feel much fear of anything. Now, at the same time, I was in my last semester of college, and I was curious about the future, as any near-college graduate would be. I started to think about different kinds of work that I could get into, and I started to look into sex work, which is a story for another day in another podcast. But I got into sugaring, camming, and doing dominatrix work. It was incredibly rewarding and exhilarating, and I loved it. 
However, doing this work while also feeling invincible meant that I didn't take the precautions that I probably should have or would now. At the end of September, on a Saturday, I met with a submissive client that I had planned to start working with in Boston. The day was supposed to be about us getting to know each other, and he had gotten me a hotel room in the city so that I wouldn't have to make the long drive back to campus late in the day. There were certain agreements that we made beforehand about boundaries that would not be crossed, and we had spoken at great length about our expectations for the day. It would entail a Red Sox game, a late lunch, and at most a little verbal humiliation and light slapping, because we were still exploring our dom-sub dynamic. And I felt safe in that because I trusted him. Unfortunately, the day didn't go as planned. The Red Sox game with drinks turned into dinner with drinks, and at his insistence hanging out in the hotel bar, once again, you guessed it, with drinks. <laughs> I didn't think much of it at the time because I'd planned to go right up to my room after and sleep it off, but every time I would finish a drink, he would insist on ordering me another and another and another until I was the most drunk that I've ever been. While at the hotel bar, he also kept trying to make physical contact, stroking my arm or thigh, touching my back, and I thought that this was weird because we hadn't agreed on it, but I figured maybe I was new to this world and this was the status quo and it was fine. Besides, I trusted him. We had met before, gone out for coffee, we had talked about his family, his kids, his upbringing, his relationship with his ex-wife, how he became a submissive, and he had shared so many vulnerable details about his life. Now, back in the hotel. I was stumbling, I couldn't really see in front of me, and eventually he insisted on coming back up to my room with me. Now, to interject... I can imagine you seeing all the red flags in the situation. Why is he insisting that you keep drinking? Why is he touching you when that was never discussed? Why had the day gone so very differently from the way it was outlined? But bear in mind, this was someone that I genuinely trusted and then didn't think had any ulterior motives, despite changing that stance in the present. When we got up to the hotel room, he quickly started to breach all established boundaries around contact, and I honestly was too drunk to be able to do anything about it. I was also scared and figured that the best thing to do was just to survive this moment and go from there. Looking back, I think I left my body and didn't feel safe enough to come back for a very, very long time afterwards. But after that night, I never heard from the sub again. About a month after this incident, I was hospitalized for suicidal ideation. I tried to find ways to cope with the trauma, to talk to therapists about it, to convince myself that it wasn't really that bad, and I thought I had succeeded. My intake of drugs started to increase, I was smoking weed more regularly, taking psychedelics every weekend, and I started drinking, which is something that I hadn't really done before that weekend. At the time, I thought all of these behaviors were fine, but looking back with a greater understanding of how trauma works, I can see that I was repressing. 
The day before I was hospitalized, I spoke to my therapist and she suggested that I might consider that I have bipolar. My brother was diagnosed with bipolar when he was younger and I knew firsthand what a difficult, painful, and scary diagnosis it could be. That unleashed the floodgates and I panicked. In a span of 24 hours, I spiraled so quickly that by the next morning, I had gotten the alcohol out of my fridge, found out which of my psychiatric medications would provide a deadly combination, and planned to kill myself. I'm glad that I did have the clarity of mind to know that I needed help, and I decided to admit myself to the psychiatric ward so that I didn't hurt myself and so that I could get the help that I needed. Good stories have three parts. There's the inciting incident. What starts the journey? I think I've answered that. Well, kind of. I've built us up to the climax of Act 1. My hospitalization is the climax, and it is what really sets me up for the journey that I'm on now. While I admitted myself to the psych ward, it quickly became clear that I would not receive the help that I needed. I spent two days in the ward without having a psychologist or psychiatrist check in with me. When a psychiatrist eventually did see me, he sat with me for 30 minutes and categorized my various behaviors as being part of a larger, multiple-month-long hypomanic episode. He said that the Lorian that I had been on had caused me to go into this hypomanic episode. Side note, bipolar fact. Oftentimes, bipolar, especially two, is diagnosed as depression, and so patients are prescribed antidepressants, and certain antidepressants can have the consequence of triggering a hypomanic episode. Side note over. He then took me off the Lorian and the Stressum, which I had been taking up until this point, and prescribed a new magic pill, this time lithium, that was sure to help me. Essentially, I spent a week in the psych ward to speak to a psychiatrist for a total of 60 minutes over the course of my stay to be prescribed a magic pill to fix my brain chemistry and be on my way. On top of this, the hospitalization alone was a very traumatic experience for me. My cell phone was taken away from me, which made it hard to contact my family and friends in South Africa. I wasn't allowed to go outside for more than 15 minutes once a day, and we weren't allowed to open our windows for fresh air either. <laughs> Visiting hours were once a day from 6 to 7 p.m., and I lived for the moments when I could see my friends for that hour. I felt incredibly alone, probably the most alone that I've ever felt in my life, and I felt the same feeling of being trapped that I did in that hotel room in Boston. While it was clear when I was admitted that I was there voluntarily, I was prevented from leaving when I realized that this was not going to work. However, I am a people's person when I'm not painfully introverted, and I like to hear other people's stories. I talked to the other patients about what brought them into the ward, heard their life stories, and for so many of them, I felt completely shocked. They had lived through unspeakable unspeakable traumas, but at no point did any of the doctors ask them about their lives or what else, besides their brain chemistry, could have led them towards suicidal ideation or attempt. I quickly realized that there was so much more to people 
so many ways that their life experiences and traumas led them to make the decisions that they made, and medication couldn't solve it all. Least of all, when those administering it seemed utterly uninterested in the lives of the patients they were treating. Getting out of the psych ward brings us to Act 2. When I got out of the psych ward, I was absolutely volatile. I was livid. I was angry. I felt betrayed by the institutions that I had entrusted with my safety. I felt like I couldn't trust anyone. And I also felt like no one knew or understood how terrifying that experience had been for me. That experience unlocked something for me, and I felt absolutely unable to control my rage that I felt was non-existent before. I felt like a live wire or a volcano ready to erupt at the slightest shake of the earth. While I was still taking my lithium, my symptoms were getting worse. I was angrier than before, I was sleeping for three hours maximum a night and waking up to pace the halls of my dorm. When I called the psychiatrist that I was seeing outside of the psych ward, who had added lamotrigine to my pill cocktail, she insisted that this was a sign of my true psychosis finally showing, and that I should continue on the medication. I was at a standstill. On the one hand, I had seen four psychiatrists in the span of two weeks. All of them had insisted that I had bipolar disorder, and that if I stopped taking medication, I would end up in a deeper psychosis with deeper depressive episodes that would slowly escalate and ruin my life, as well as the lives of the people around me. But I didn't like how I felt on the medication, and something inside of me was telling me that I could and should stop. This was a terrifying decision to make. What do you do when every healthcare professional around you is telling you that it's a bad idea? The problem with a diagnosis like bipolar is that any thought you might have or share is attributed to the diagnosis. I would call the psychiatrist to insist that I didn't want to be on medication and that I could find another way to cope with my symptoms, and they would tell me that that was me being delusional or feeling invincible once again. And who do you believe in a situation like that? Yourself, although you have now been labeled mad, so can you really trust yourself? Or do you trust the experts, the professionals? The unfortunate thing about many of these diagnoses is that they can make you turn against yourself, feeling that there is a monster inside of you that you have to overcome that you can't trust, and losing trust in yourself to such an extreme degree can be really damaging. It was for me. But ultimately, I chose to listen to my gut. This was one of, if not the hardest decisions I've ever had to make. My therapists, my psychiatrists, and even the energy healers that I was going to were all telling me to stay on medication. One therapist told me that it would be selfish not to because I would end up hurting my friends and my family. I started to wonder, is this selfish? Am I being unkind? Do I owe it to the people who have to live with me to take these medications, despite how I am suffering because of them? Will I become a monster? Will this unpredictable part of me spin my life out of control? Do I need to be at war with myself? It wasn't easy to make the decision, but 
I couldn't have done it without my incredibly supportive mother, brother, and best friends who supported my autonomy in this process. And for that and for them, I will always be grateful. If choosing to stop taking my medication was the hardest decision I've ever made, the process of going off them was the hardest journey I've ever taken. Not only was I weaning myself off the lamotrigine, benzodiazepines, and lithium that I had been prescribed, but while in the psych ward, I had been taken off of my Lorian and Stressum cold turkey. Drug withdrawal is not a joke, and drug withdrawal from five psychiatric medications at once certainly isn't either. For the next few months, yes, months, I was consumed by anger, anxiety, guilt, frustration, and deep depressive episodes. I was irritable all of the time. I would burst into fits of rage at seemingly unextraordinary events in my day, like not being able to borrow my mom's white shirt, true story, and every night I would think about suicide, or worse, threaten my family with my suicide. It was hard for me, and it was hard for everyone around me. Looking at my journal entries from that period, I felt like I was a monster. I felt so ashamed of the ways that I would lash out at the people around me, but I also felt completely unable to prevent my mood swings or taking them out on others. I started to seek help from people outside of mainstream Western medicine. I was still going to therapy on a weekly basis, but I was also seeing energy healers, Reiki practitioners, psychics, functional medicine doctors, and sangomas. I looked into breathwork, I looked into acupuncture, I looked into ayahuasca, I looked for answers anywhere on anything that might help me. I tried cutting sugar out of my diet when I read that it had helped one person who shared my diagnosis. I tried meditating and mindfulness when I read studies about their effectiveness on coping with difficult emotions. Most days, however, were spent in a consuming anxiety that prevented me from leaving the house, and then a pandemic that took over its function. But eventually, things did get better. And if I could summarize what made the biggest difference, it's that I stopped running from myself. I stopped running from the feelings that I was so terrified to experience, and I started to experience them. Without judgment, I started to look at myself. I started to look at the role that trauma played in my hospitalization and in my uncontrollable feelings of rage, how my unprocessed trauma had started to build and compound and had left me feeling raw and monstrous. I started to sit with myself, to sit with my feelings, to sit with the parts of myself that I had abandoned, and to sit with the parts of myself that were wounded. I started to get curious about what I was experiencing, about why certain emotions came up when they did, and what else I might be hiding from. It was painful, and it wasn't easy. It's not easy to sit with yourself. Before starting on this journey, that was my biggest fear, for what I might discover that I might not like or have the tools to deal with. I started to sift through the experiences that made me who I was, who I am, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And when I stopped pathologizing myself, when I let go of diagnostic titles and sought to see myself as I really was, I found ways to heal, I found ways to stay alive, and I found ways to keep myself alive. <laughs> 
It's an ongoing process and it has taught me a lot. And in the rest of this podcast series, I'll go into some of the things that were the biggest points of growth for me, the biggest medicines for me, the biggest teachers. And I hope if you're looking for this healing, that these lessons will find you exactly where you are. And that brings us to the end of the first episode of Human Becoming. This podcast, at least the first season, will really deal with the process of getting closer to yourself, of getting closer to your trauma, to your shadow, to the parts of yourself that you don't like but desperately need to embrace. I look forward to exploring my journey with you, and hey, hopefully it'll leave you with a few more questions and reflections to help you on your journey. If you enjoyed this episode and want to stay in the loop, subscribe, and if you know someone who might enjoy or benefit from listening to it, send it their way. I look forward to being here with you again next week. Until then, take care.